Tertium Organum by P. D. Spensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter Seventeen. If consciousness exists in the world, then it must permeate everything. We have accustomed ourselves to ascribe animism and consciousness in this or that form to those things only which we designate as beings, i.e., to those whom we find analogous to ourselves in the functions which define animism in our eyes. Inanimate objects and mechanical phenomena are to us lifeless and unconscious. But this cannot be so. It is only for our limited mind, for our limited power of communication with other consciousnesses, for our limited skill in analogy that consciousness manifests itself only in certain classes of living creatures, alongside of which a long series of dead things and mechanical phenomena exist. But if we could not converse amongst ourselves, if every one of us could not infer the existence of consciousness in another by analogy with himself, then every one in the world would consider himself alone to be conscious, and he would relegate all the rest of humankind to mechanical, dead nature. In other words, we recognise as conscious only those beings which are perfectly or imperfectly conscious of themselves in their three-dimensional sections of the world, i.e. beings whose consciousness is analogous to ours. About other consciousnesses we do not and cannot know. All beings conscious of themselves, not in the three-dimensional section of the world, are inaccessible to us. If they manifest at all in our life, then we necessarily regard their manifestations as those of dead and unconscious nature. Our power of analogy is limited to this section. We cannot think logically outside the conditions of the three-dimensional section. Therefore, everything that both lives and is conscious of itself, though not analogous to us, must appear dead and mechanical. But sometimes we vaguely feel an intense life manifesting in the phenomena of nature, and sense a vivid emotionality the manifestations of which constitute the phenomena of, to us, inanimate nature. What I wish to convey is that behind the phenomena of visible manifestations is felt the noumenon of emotion. In electrical discharges, in thunder and lightning, are seen flashes of the sensuous, nervous shudderings of some gigantic organism. A strange individuality, which is all their own, is sensed in certain days. There are days brimming with the marvellous and the mystic, days having each its own individual and unique consciousness, its own emotions, its own thoughts. One may almost commune with these days, and they will tell you that they live a long, long time, perhaps eternally, and that they have known and seen many, many things. In the processional of the year, in the iridescent leaves of autumn with their memory-laden smell, in the first snow frosting the fields and communicating a strange freshness and sensitiveness to the air, in the spring freshlets, in the warming sun, in the awakening but still naked branches through which gleams the turquoise sky, in the white nights of the north, and in the dark, humid, warm tropical nights spangled with stars, in all these are the thoughts, the emotions, the forms peculiar to itself alone, of some great consciousness, or better, all this is the expression of the emotions, thoughts and forms of the consciousness of a mysterious being, nature. There can be nothing dead or mechanical in nature. If in general life and consciousness exist, they must exist in all. Life and consciousness make up the world. If we consider nature from our side, from the side of phenomena, then it is necessary to say that each thing, each phenomenon, possesses consciousness. 
a mountain, a tree, a river, the fish within the river, dew and rain, planet, fire. Each separately must possess a consciousness of its own. If we consider nature from the other side, from the side of noumena, then it is necessary to say that each thing and each phenomena of our world is a manifestation in our section of some consciousness, incomprehensible to us, belonging to another section, that consciousness having their functions incomprehensible to us. In that section of space, one consciousness is such, and its function is such, that it manifests itself here as a mountain, some other manifests as a tree, a third as a little fish, and so forth. The phenomena of our world are very different from one another. If there is nothing else but manifestations in our section of different consciousnesses, then these consciousnesses must be very different too. Between the consciousness of a mountain and the consciousness of a man, there must be the same difference as between a mountain and a man. We have already admitted the possibility of different existences. We said that a house exists, and that a man exists, and that an idea exists also, but they all exist differently. If we pursue this thought, then we shall discover many kinds of different existences. The fantasy of fairy tales, making all the world animate, ascribes human consciousness to mountains, rivers, forests. But this is just as untrue to the complete denial of consciousness to inanimate nature. Noumena are as distinct and various as phenomena, which are their manifestation in our three-dimensional sphere. Each stone, each grain of sand, each planet has its noumenon, consisting of life and of consciousness, binding them into certain wholes incomprehensible to us. The activity of life of separate units may vary greatly. The degree of the activity of life can be determined from the standpoint of its power of reproducing itself. In inorganic mineral nature, this activity is so insignificant that units of its nature accessible to our observation do not reproduce themselves, although it may only seem so to us because of the narrowness of our view in time and space. Perhaps if that view embraced hundreds of thousands of years and our entire planet simultaneously, we might see the growth of minerals and metals. Were we to observe from the inside one cubic centimetre of the human body, knowing nothing of the existence of the entire body and of the man himself, then the phenomena going on in this little cube of flesh would seem like elemental phenomena in inanimate nature. But in any case, for us, phenomena are divided into living and mechanical, and visible objects are divided into organic and inorganic. The latter are partitioned without resistance, remaining as they were before. It is possible to break a stone into halves, and then there will be two stones, but if we were to cut a snail in two, then there would not be two snails. This means that the consciousness of the stone is very simple, primitive, so simple that it may be fractured without change of state. But a snail consists of living cells. Each living cell is a complex consciousness, considerably more intricate than that of a stone. The body of the snail possesses the power to move, to nourish itself, feel pleasure and pain, seek the first and avoid the last, and most important of all, it possesses the faculty to multiply, to create new forms similar to itself, to involve inorganic substance within these forms, subduing physical laws to its service. The snail is a complex centre of transmutation of some physical energies into others. This centre possesses a consciousness of its own. 
It is for this reason that the snail is indivisible. Its consciousness is infinitely higher than that of a stone. The snail has a consciousness of form, i.e., the form of a snail is conscious of itself, as it were. The form of a stone is not conscious of itself. In inorganic nature, where we see life, consciousness is much more easily discerned. In the snail, a living creature, we already admit consciousness without difficulty. But life belongs not alone to separate individual organisms. Anything indivisible is a living being. Each cell in an organism is a living being and it must be conscious up to a certain point. Each combination of cells having a definite function is a living being also. Another higher combination, the organ, is a living being no less and possesses a consciousness of its own. Indivisibility in our sphere is a sign of a definite function. If a given phenomenon on our plane is a manifestation of that which on another plane is consciousness, then on our side evidently, indivisibility corresponds to individuality of consciousness on the other side. Divisibility on our side shows divisibility on that side. The consciousness of the divisible can be a collective, non-individual consciousness only. We recognise consciousness in the whole organism only. But even a complete organism is merely a section of a certain magnitude, of what we may call the life of this organism from birth to death. We may imagine this life as a body of four dimensions extended in time. The three-dimensional physical body is merely a section of the four-dimensional body, Linga Sharira. The image of a man which we know, his personality, is also merely a section of his true personality, which undoubtedly has its own consciousness. Therefore, we see in a man quite clearly three consciousnesses. First, the consciousness of the body, which manifests itself in instincts and in the constant work of the body. Second, his personality, I, and that is the capital letter I, which we know and by which we are conscious of ourselves. Third, the consciousness of all life, a greater and higher I, again the capital letter I. In our state of development, these three consciousnesses know one another only very imperfectly, communicating under narcosis only, in trance, in ecstasy, in sleep, in hypnotic and mediumistic states. In addition to our own consciousness, to us unknown, with which we are indissolubly bound, we are surrounded by various other consciousnesses, which we do not know either. These consciousnesses we often feel. Their lives are composed of our lives. We enter into these consciousnesses as their component parts, just as into our consciousness enter other eyes. Again, that is the capital letter I. These consciousnesses are good or evil spirits, helping us or precipitating evil. Family, clan, nation, race, any aggregate to which we belong. Such an aggregate undoubtedly possesses a consciousness of its own, just as it possesses a life of its own. Any group of men having its separate function and feeling its inner connection and unity, such as a philosophical school, a church, a sect, a Masonic order, a society, a party, etc., etc., is undoubtedly a living conscious being. A nation, a people, is a living being. Humanity is a living being also. This is the grand man. Adam Cadman of the Kabbalists. Adam Cadman is the being living in men, uniting in himself the lives of all men. Upon this subject, H. P. Blavatsky, in her great work The Secret Doctrine, 
volume 3, page 146, has this to say, and Dispensky quotes, It is not the atom of dust, in brackets, of chapter 2, who is thus made in the divine image, but the divine androgyny, in brackets, of chapter 1, or Adam Cadman. Adam Cadman, this is humanity, or humankind, homo sapiens, the sphinx, i.e., the being with the body of an animal and the face of a superman. Entering as a component part into different great and little eyes, the first of which is his life throughout its entire cycle, man himself consists of an innumerable number of great and little eyes. Many of the eyes living in him do not even know one another, just as men who live in the same house may not know one another. Expressed in terms of this analogy, it may be said that man has much in common with a house filled with inhabitants the most diverse. Or better, he is like a great ocean liner on which there are many transient passengers, each going to his own place for his own purpose, each uniting in himself elements the most diverse. And each self-conscious unit in the population of this steamer orients himself, involuntarily and unconsciously regards himself as the very centre of the steamer. This is a fairly true presentment of a human being. Perhaps it would be more correct to compare a man with some little separated place on earth, living a life of its own, with a forest lake full of the most diverse life, reflecting the sun and the stars, and hiding in its depths some incomprehensible phantasm, perhaps an undine or a water sprite. If we abandon analogies and return to facts, so far as these are accessible to our observation, it then becomes necessary to begin with several somewhat artificial divisions of the human being. The old division into body, soul and spirit has in itself a certain authenticity, but leads often to confusion, because when such a division is attempted, disagreements immediately arise as to where the body ends and where the soul begins, where the soul ends and the spirit begins, and so forth. There are no strict limits at all, nor can there be. In addition to this, confusion enters in by reason of the opposition of body, soul and spirit, which are recognised in this case as inimical principles. This is entirely erroneous also, because the body is an expression of the soul and the soul of the spirit. The very terms body, soul and spirit need explanation. The body is the physical body with, to us, subconscious mind and the psyche studied by scientific psychology i.e. the reflected activity which is guided by impressions received from the external world and from the body. The soul is the higher psychic life, guided by inner principles proceeding from itself, as it were, not depending on outer impressions in the outer world. The spirit comprises those higher principles which guide the soul life. The inner being of a man has lower psyche, his soul and his spirit are also divided according to the nature of consciousness into three categories which do not coincide with the previous division. First, the subconscious region, the region of instincts, and the inner instinctive consciousness of the different organs, parts of the body, and the entire organism. Second, the region of the so-called clear consciousness. Here belong all the sensations and perceptions of the outer world and of the body itself, all perceptions, thoughts, concepts, ideas, feelings, emotions, desires, either conscious or unconscious at any given moment, but which may become conscious. Third, the region of the higher consciousness. The higher consciousness does not manifest in the majority of men at all, 
or does so only in confused intuitions and suggestions. This is the region of soul and spirit. But when a man possesses higher consciousness, i.e. when he is conscious in those regions, then the higher consciousness, i.e. soul and spirit, includes the psyche, both subconsciousness and clear consciousness, within itself and does not exclude it. But under the usual conditions of the average man, the focus of his consciousness is confined to the psyche, perpetually going from one object to another in the region of clear consciousness and subconsciousness. I wish to eat. I read a newspaper. I wait for a letter. And only very rarely touching the regions of the soul and spirit. But these regions of the soul and spirit are opening to the religious, aesthetic and moral emotions, also the higher intellect, which expresses itself in abstract thinking, united with the moral and aesthetic sense, i.e. the sense of the necessity of the coordination of thought, feeling, word and action. But usually in saying I, and that's the capital letter I, a man means not the total complex of all these regions, but that which in a given moment is in the focus of his consciousness. I wish, these words playing the most important role in the life of a man, usually refer not at all to every side of his being simultaneously, but merely to some small and insignificant facet, which at a given moment holds the focus of consciousness and subjects to itself all the rest until in turn is forced out by another equally insignificant facet. In the self-consciousness of man there occurs a continual shifting of view from one subject to another. Through the focus of consciousness runs a continuous cinematographical film of feelings and impressions, and each separate impression defines the I of a given moment. From this point of view, the consciousness of man has often been compared to a dark sleeping town in the midst of which the night guards with lanterns slowly move about, each lighting up a little circle around himself. This is a true analogy. In each given moment, there are several such unsteadily lighted circles in the focus of consciousness, and all the rest is enveloped in darkness. Each such little circle represents an I, living its own life, sometimes very short, sometimes outlasting the man himself for a long time. And there is continuous movement, either fast or slow, moving out into the light more of new and still new objects, or else old ones from the region of memory, or tormentingly revolving in a circle of the same fixed ideas. This continuous motion going on in our consciousness, this uninterrupted running over of the light from one eye to another, explains the phenomenon of motion in the outer visible world. We know already by our intellect that there is no such motion. We know that everything exists in infinite spaces of time. Nothing is made, nothing becomes, or is. But we do not see everything at once, and therefore it seems to us that everything moves, grows, is becoming. We do not see everything at once, either in the outer world nor in the inner world. Thence arises the illusion of motion. For example, as we ride past a house, the house turns behind us. But if we could see it, not with our eyes, not in perspective, but by higher vision, simultaneously from all sides, from below and from above, and from the inside, we could no longer see that illusory motion, but would see the house entirely immobile, just as it is in reality. Mentally, we know that the house did not move. It is just the same with everything else. The motion, growth, becoming, which is going on all around us in the world, is no more real than the motion of a house which we are riding by, or the motion of trees and fields relative to the windows of a rapidly moving railway car. 
motion goes on inside of us, and it creates the illusion of motion round about us. The lighted circle runs quickly from one eye to another, from one object, from one idea, from one perception or image to another. Within the focus of consciousness, rapidly changing eyes succeed one another, a little of the light of consciousness going over from one eye to another. This is the true motion which alone exists in the world. Should this motion stop, should all the eyes simultaneously enter the focus of consciousness, should the light so expand so as to illumine all at once that which is usually lighted bit by bit and gradually, and could a man grasp simultaneously by his reason all that ever entered or will enter his consciousness, and all that which is never clearly illumined by consciousness and lies in the subconsciousness, producing in its action on the psyche nevertheless, then would a man behold himself in the midst of an immobile universe in which there would exist simultaneously everything that lies usually in the remote depths of memory, in the past, all that lies in the remote distance from him, all that lies in the future. C.H. Hinton very well says in regard to higher consciousness, and Dispensky quotes, By the same process by which we know about the existence of other men around us, we may know of the high intelligences by whom we are surrounded. We feel them, but we do not realise them. To realise them, it would be necessary to develop our power of perception. The power of seeing with our bodily eye is limited to the three-dimensional section, but the inner eye is not thus limited. We can organise our power of seeing in higher space, and we can form conceptions of realities in this higher space and this affords the groundwork for the perception and study of these other beings and man. We are, with reference to the higher things of life, like blind and puzzled children. We know that we are members of one body, limbs of one vine, but we cannot discern, except by instinct and feeling, what that body is, what that vine is. Our problem consists in the dimension of the limitations of our perception. Nature consists of many entities towards the apprehension of which we strive, for this purpose, new conceptions have to be formed first, and vast fields of observation shall be unified under one common law. The real history of progress lies in the growth of new conceptions. When the new conception is formed, it is found to be quite simple and natural. We ask ourselves what we have gained, and we answer, nothing, we have simply removed an obvious limitation. The question may be put, in what way do we come in contact with these higher beings at present? And evidently the answer is, in those ways in which we tend to form organic unions, unions in which the activities of individuals coalesce in a living way. The coherence of a military empire or of a subjugated population, presenting no natural nucleus of growth, is not one through which we should hope to grow into direct contact with our higher destinies. But in friendship, in voluntary associations, and above all, in the family, we tend toward our greater life. Just as, to explore the distant stars of the heavens, a particular material arrangement is necessary, which we call a telescope, so to explore the nature of the beings who are higher than we, a mental arrangement is necessary. We must prepare a more extended power of looking. We want a structure developed inside the skull for the purpose, which an exterior telescope will do for the other. And that is the end of the quote. And Dispensky continues, This animism of nature takes the most diverse directions. This tree is a living being. The birch tree in general, the species, is a living being. 
A birch tree forest is a living being also, a forest in which there are trees of different kinds, grass, flowers, ants, beetles, birds, beasts. This is a living being too, living by the life of everything composing it, conscious through all the consciousnesses of which it consists. This idea is very interestingly expressed in the essay of P. Florensky, The Humanitarian Roots of Idealism, and in brackets, The Theosophical Messenger, 1909, number 2, page 288, in Russian. And Dispensky quotes, Are there many people who regard a forest not merely as a collective proper noun and rhetorical embodiment, i.e. as a pure fiction, but as something unique, living, dot, 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 the real unity is in the unity of self-consciousness, dot, dot, dot. Are there many who recognise unity in a forest, i.e. the living soul of a forest taken as a whole, voodoo, wood demon, old nick? Do you consent to recognise undines and water sprites, those souls of the aquatic element? End of quote. And Svensky continues. The activity of the life of such a composite being as a forest is not the same as the activity of different species of plants and animals, and the activity of life of a species is again different from the life of separate individuals. Moreover, the diversity of the functions expressed in different life activities reveals the differences existing between the consciousnesses of different organisms. The life activity of a single leaf of a birch tree is of course an infinitely lower form of activity than the life of the tree. The activity of the life of the tree is not such as the activity of the life of the species, and the life of the species is not such as the life of the forest. The functions of these four lives are entirely different, and their consciousnesses must be correspondingly different also. The consciousness of a single cell of a human body must be as much lower in comparison with the consciousness of the body, i.e. with the physical consciousness of man, and its life activity is lower in comparison with the life activity of the entire organism. Therefore, we may regard the noumenon of a phenomenon as the soul of that phenomenon, i.e., the hidden soul of the phenomenon is its noumenon. The concept of the soul of a phenomenon, or the noumenon of a phenomenon, includes within itself both life and consciousness together, with their functions and sections of the world incomprehensible to us, and the manifestation of those in our sphere constitutes a phenomenon. The idea of an animistic universe leads invariably to the idea of the world soul, a being whose manifestation is this visible universe. The idea of a world soul was very picturesquely understood by the ancient religions of India. The mystical poem, the Bhagavad Gita, gives a remarkable presentment of Mahadev, i.e. the great diva whose life is this world. Dispensky quotes, Thus Krishna propounded his teaching to his disciples, dot, 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 preparing them for the apprehension of those high spiritual truths which unfold before his inner sight in a moment of illumination. When he spoke to Mahadeva, his voice became very deep, and his face was illuminated by an inner light. Once Arjuna, in an impulse of boldness, said to him, Let us see Mahadeva in his divine form. May we behold him. And then Krishna, dot, 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 began to speak of a being who breathes in every creature, has a hundredfold and a thousandfold forms, many-faced, many-eyed, facing everywhere, and who surpasses everything created by infinity, who envelops in his body the whole world, things still and animate. If the radiance of a thousand suns should burst forth suddenly in the sky, 
it would not compare with the radiance of that mighty spirit. When Krishna spoke thus of Mahadeva, a beam of light of such tremendous force shone in his eyes, that his disciples could not endure the radiance of that light, and fell at Krishna's feet. From every fear the hair rose in Arjuna's head, and bowing low he said, Thy words are terrible, we cannot look upon such a being as thou evokest before our eyes. This form makes us tremble. End of quote. And this is Asterix, The Great Initiates, by E. Shura. In an interesting book of lectures by Professor William James, A Pluralistic Universe, there is a lecture on Fencher, devoted to the conscious universe, and Dispensky quotes. Ordinary monistic idealism leaves everything intermediary out. It recognises only extremes, as if, after the first rude face of the phenomenal world in all its particularity, nothing but the supreme in all its perfections can be found. First, you and I, just as we are in this room, and the moment we get below that surface, the unutterable itself. Doesn't this show a singularly indigent imagination? Isn't this brave universe made on a richer pattern, with room in it for the long hierarchy of beings? Materialistic science makes it indefinitely richer in terms, with its molecules and ether and electrons and whatnot. Absolute idealism, thinking of reality only under intellectual forms, knows not what to do with the bodies of any grade, and can make no use of any psychophysical analogy or correspondence. End of quote. Fencher, from those writings of Professor James, makes copious quotation, upheld quite a different viewpoint. Fencher's ideas are so near to those which have been presented in the previous chapters that we shall dwell upon them more extensively. I use the words of Professor James. And Dispensky quotes, The original sin, according to Fencher, of both our popular and scientific thinking, is our inveterate habit of regarding the spiritual not as the rule but as an exception in the midst of nature. Instead of believing our life is to be fed at the breasts of the greater life, our individuality to be sustained by the greater individuality, which must necessarily have more consciousness and more independence than all that it brings forth, we habitually treat whatever lies outside of our life as so much slag and ashes of life only. Or if we believe in divine spirit, we fancy it on the one side as bodiless, and nature as soulless on the other. What comfort or peace, Fencher asks, can come from such a doctrine? The flowers wither at its breath, the stars turn into stone, our own body grows unworthy of our spirit and sinks to the tenement of carnal senses only. The book of nature turns into a volume on mechanics, in which whatever has life is treated as a sort of anomaly, a great chasm of separation yawns between us and all that is higher than ourselves, and God becomes the thinnest of abstractions. Fencher's great instrument for verifying the daylight view is analogy. Dot, dot, dot. Bain defines genius as the power of seeing analogies. The number that Fencher could perceive was prodigious, but he insisted on the differences as well. Neglect to make allowance for these, he said, is the common fallacy in analogical reasoning. Most of us, for example, reason justly that since all the minds we know are connected with bodies, therefore God's mind should be connected with the body. Proceed to suppose that the body must be just an animal body over again and paint an altogether human picture of God. But all that the analogy comports is a body, 
The particular features of our body are adaptations to a habitat so different from God's that if God has a physical body at all, it must be utterly different from ours in structure. The vaster orders of mind go with the vaster orders of body. The entire earth on which we live must have, according to Fincher, its own collective consciousness. So must each sun, moon, planet. So must the whole solar system have its own wider consciousness, on which the consciousnesses of our earth plays one part. So has the entire starry system as such its consciousness, and that if the starry system be not the sum of all that is, materially considered, then the whole system, along with whatever else may be, is the body of the absolutely totalised consciousness of the universe to which men give the name of God. Spectacularly, Venture is thus a monist in his theology. But there is room in his universe for every grade of spiritual being between man and the final all-inclusive God. The earth soul he passionately believes in. He treats the earth as our special human guardian angel. We can pray to the earth as men pray to their saints. His most important conclusion is that the constitution of the world is identical throughout. In ourselves, visual consciousness goes with our eyes, tactile consciousness with our skin. But although neither skin nor eye knows aught of the sensations of the other, they come together and figure in some sort of relation and combination in some more inclusive consciousness, which each of us names his self. Quite similarly then, says Venture, we must suppose that my consciousness of myself and yours of yourself, although in their immediacy they keep separate and know nothing of each other, are yet known and used together in a higher consciousness, that of the human race, say, into which they enter as constituent parts. Similarly, the whole human and animal kingdoms come together as conditions of a consciousness of still wider scope. This combines in the soul of the earth with the consciousness of the whole vegetable kingdom, which in turn contributes its share of experience to that of the whole solar system, etc. The supposition of an earth consciousness meets a strong instinctive prejudice. All the consciousness we directly know seems told to brains, but our brain which primarily serves to correlate our muscular reactions with the external objects on which we depend, performs a function which the earth performs in an entirely different way. She has no proper muscles or limbs of her own, and the only objects external to her are the other stars. To these her whole mass reacts by most exquisite alterations in its total gait, and by still more exquisite vibratory responses in its substance. Her ocean reflects the lights of heaven as a mighty mirror, her atmosphere refracts them like a monstrous lens, the clouds and snowfields combine them into white, the woods and flowers disperse them into colours. Polarisation, interference, absorption, awaken sensibilities in matter of which our senses are too coarse to take any note. For these cosmic relations of hers, then, she no more needs a special brain than she needs eyes or ears. Our brains do indeed unify and correlate innumerable functions. Our eyes know nothing of sound, our ears know nothing of light, but having brains we can feel sound and light together and compare them, dot, dot, dot. Must every higher means of unification between things be a literal brain fibre? Cannot the earth mind know otherwise the contents of our minds together? In a striking page, Fincher relates one of his moments of direct vision of truth. On a certain morning I went out for a walk. The fields were green, the birds sang, the dew glistened, and the smoke was rising. Here and there a man appeared. 
a light as of transfiguration lay on all things. It was only a little bit of earth. It was only one moment of her existence. And yet, as my look embraced her more and more, it seemed to me not only so beautiful an idea, but so true and clear a fact, that she is an angel, an angel carrying me along with her into heaven, dot, dot, dot. I asked myself how the opinions of men could ever have so spun themselves away from life so far as to deem the earth only a dry clod, dot, dot, dot. But such an experience as this passes for fantasy. The earth is a globular body, and what more can she be? One can find in mineralogical cabinets. The special thought of Finch's is his belief that the more inclusive forms of consciousness are in part constituted by the more limited forms. Not that they are the mere sum of the more limited forms, as our mind is not the bare sum of our sights plus our sounds plus our pains, but in adding these terms together it also finds relation among them and weaves them into schemes and forms and objects of which no one sense in its separate estate knows anything. So the earth soul traces relations between the contents of my mind and the contents of yours of which neither of our separate minds is conscious. It has schemes, forms and objects proportionate to its wider field, which our mental fields are far too narrow to cognise. By ourselves we are simply out of relation with each other, for we are both of us there and different from each other, which is a positive relation. What we are without knowing, it knows that we are. It is as if the total universe of inner life had a sort of grain or direction, a sort of valvular structure permitting knowledge to flow in one way only, so that the wider might always have the narrower under observation, but never the narrower the wider. Fincher likens our individual persons on the earth under so many sense organs of the earth's soul. We add to its perspective life. Dot, dot, dot. It absorbs our perception into a larger sphere of knowledge and combines them with the other data there. The memories and conceptual relations that have spun themselves round the perceptions of a certain person remain in the larger earth life as distinct as ever and form new relations. Dot, dot, dot. Fincher's ideas are expounded in his book, Zenda Vesta. End of quote. And Dispensky continues. I have made such a lengthy quotation from Professor James's book in order to show that the ideas of animism and of consciousness of the world are neither new nor paradoxical. It is a natural and logical necessity, resulting from a broader view of the world than that which we usually permit ourselves to hold. Logically, we must either recognise life and consciousness in everything, in all dead nature, or deny them completely, even in ourselves. End of chapter 17